Everybody, this is your host, Steve Dawson. Welcome to the One Life Podcast, Season 1, featuring Jim Burns, brought to you by Music Makers and Soul Shakers. This podcast is completely ad-free and listener-supported. Please check out all of our episodes at makersandshakerspodcast.com. And if you enjoy what we do and would like to support it, you can make a one-time donation or subscribe to our Patreon page. Just follow the donate button on the top right of makersandshakerspodcast.com. Now, just a reminder that what you're about to hear is unscripted on all counts. Jim Burns is speaking off the top of his head, and all musicians are improvising at all times. This was all performed live over two days at the Warehouse Studio in Vancouver and was recorded there by Sheldon Zaharko and mixed by Steve Dawson in Nashville, Tennessee. Guitars and pedal steel by Steve Dawson, drums and percussion by Gary Craig, bass and mandolin by Jeremy Holmes, and keyboards by Chris Jestrin. I'd just like to thank Jim Burns for agreeing to do a crazy project like this. And without further ado, here is episode two of One Life, season one with Jim Burns. Yeah, school days, those early school days. I'm sorry to say, but I was pretty good at school. <laughs> it was easy for me. I know so many people go on and on about the, the rigors of uh, early education. And we had the nuns, you know, I mean, we had the, the whole deal. I mean, they, they heard, uh, you know, you were down at the library down in the neighborhood and somebody heard you say a curse word, you'd go back and get to eat a bar of soap and all that stuff. But it, you know, at the same time, you know, people go on and on about the nuns, you know, the, the terrible experience they have with them. But I got to say this. Well, I had I had one nun that was just one of the best teachers I've ever had was when I was in the eighth grade. But we'll get to her in a minute. But we had this one nun uh, when I was in the fifth grade. And later in life, when I was in the Army, and I had a, uh, a, a drill instructor barking in my face until he ran out of gas, I was really able to tell him, you know, I had a nun in the fifth grade, could have had you for breakfast, so save this bullshit for somebody else, okay? You know, she was uh, from Ireland, from Cavan County, about four feet 11, had a glass eye, and man, you didn't want to mess with her. <laughs> but uh, but you learned early on, you know, that you couldn't get away with uh, thinking you were gonna get through life with your sense of humor or your good looks or anything, but sometimes you just had a put your head down and go to work, you know. <laughs> so that was great. Then I had this I had this other nun when I was in the in the eighth grade, Sister Michael Marie, they called her, but she she later we became friends uh, when they were able to take the habits off and all that stuff. And she still still remained in the convent, but her name was Lee Conley and we ran into one another a few times and she died just a few years ago. A friend of mine that I uh, had had been my best friend in, in grade school, this guy named Danny Foley, 
who uh, went on to be the uh, postmaster in Davenport, Iowa for years. Anyway, we reconnected uh, through Facebook just a couple years back. And, and we talked about Sister Michael Marie. And, uh, and he had somehow found out where she was. And, and I sent her uh, a letter and I sent her a copy of our CD, House of Refuge. And I got the most beautiful note back from her, a little handwritten thing. She was 90 years old, and I guess she died just maybe about a year after she had sent me this. But to reconnect with that, she she had been, you know, she uh, encouraged my uh, all my artistic side and everything and uh, turned me on to great poetry, turned me on to, to great literature, and uh, I will always be thankful to her uh, for the... Uh, the education that she gave me. And, uh, and like I say, you know, coming up the hard way with those nuns, in some ways I thought was really good because, uh, you know, they got you ready for the real world <laughs> in some ways. Now, I remember so well, you know, we had taken all these tests and, and uh, I got accepted into uh, St. Louis University High School, founded in 1818, the oldest high school west of the Mississippi River and uh, run by the Jesuits. And, uh, but the day that I got that letter that I got accepted there, it was like the world opened up for me. Because it was on the other side of town. I was gonna get out of our, our little neighborhood. And, and uh, the, the thing, you know, I mean, the, the education, like, you know, my dad would do that, you and your goddamn education. Well, I got a good one. I got a really good one from those guys. And, you know, we had our problems too. But uh, there at, at, at St. Louis U High, well, the day before I started high school, I broke my arm playing football. And uh, so I was, uh, was going to go out for a couple of sports, although I probably wouldn't have made the team. I was never the most athletic guy in the world. But I was going to have the swim team, this, and that, and the other. But I had this broken arm, so it kind of stopped me from... And uh, there on the, on the billboard at school, there was tacked up a little thing, auditions for... A play we had there. There was a group at the school that were called the Dauphin Players, and like the the Dauphin from France, right? And uh, so I went out and I auditioned for this play, a play called uh, A Cook for Mr. General. And we used to, at that time at the school, all, all the plays they would do were, were all boys, you know, just all, all males cast. And so um, this was one of these, uh, like sort of like No Time for Sergeants, A Cook for Mr. General. These, took place in, in the army, and I got the part of Private Rooney. And uh, that was the beginning of this whole entire, this career that I have until this day. I had a teacher, a guy named uh, Joe Schulte, an incredible human being. He, he passed away last year, but he became once again, one of my best friends in life. Uh, he ran the Dolphin Players and the, the whole artistic uh, sort of uh, side of school. But oddly enough, for a fellow that was so wrapped up in the arts, he taught calculus. I mean, this guy was a real genius. I mean, both sides of his brain uh, worked all the time. But uh, so he had got me involved in uh, these, uh, we would go to speech meets here and there and do at acting things. and. Won some awards from the uh, National Catholic Theater Conference and uh, got to go to Washington, D.C. to, you know, act like I was a hot something or another. But in the summers, this was the summer of 1964 and the summer of 1965, 
we would go, uh, Joe, myself, and probably two other guys, we would drive to New York City. Uh, his sister-in-law was a, worked in the chorus, was a Korean in, in New York, in Broadway musicals and stuff. And we would go and we would see every, I mean every play, on Broadway, off Broadway, off, off Broadway. And uh, that particular summer of 1964 was, uh, was really something. We went and uh, well, saw the original. Well, one of the one of the big ones we saw that year was uh, closing night uh, of Hamlet with Richard Burton, directed by John Gielgud. And uh, what an incre- I mean, what an experience for you know, kid junior in high school and uh, wanted to get this career in the theater. And c- coming out of that, uh, the great uh, actor, Canadian actor Hume Cronin. From uh, London, Ontario, and a uh, an heir to the uh, Labatt's. Uh, his mother was a Labatt, the Labatt's Brewing Fortune. But anyway, Hume Cronin, of course, uh, went to Hollywood and had many, many great uh, uh, roles and um, just you know an incredible career as an actor. Uh, and he played Polonius in this uh, version of of Hamlet. You know, this with, with Richard Burton. Now, years, years later, so that was 1964. I guess it would have been 1991. I got cast in a uh, a movie of the week for CBS that was shot here in town. A movie called Christmas on Division Street. Kenneth Welsh, another great Canadian actor, was in it. Fred Savage, the kid from uh, Wonder Years, he was a he's kind of the star in the thing. And uh, Hume Cronin was in the as well. And I got cast uh, as uh, Hume Cronin's. Uh, he, he played a homeless guy in uh, in Philadelphia. And uh, I, I was his social, I got cast as his social worker. So all these scenes I had were, were with Hume. And uh, so, you know, this guy was, a you know, really a big time actor. And holy cow, I got these scenes with him. And so to kind of break the ice, well, my mother, my mom and dad had moved about three months before. And uh, mom had, you know, in, in their moving, she, she sent all this stuff that had been down in the basement. And she sent me this box that had every playbill from every play all those shows I saw those summers of 64 and 65 uh, in, in a shoebox and uh, so anyway we, we got to the first day of, uh, of shooting and, and I met Mr. Cronin and uh, I happened to pull out this uh, program from August 9th 1964 that I had gotten in a theater in New York and I said uh, would you sign my program please and he said where the hell did you get this and I explained to him the story of uh, how, you know, where I'd gotten it and everything. And it was a, it was a great icebreaker. And uh, we were able to go on and made it quite a successful movie. It still shows up around Christmas time. And, uh, but that was, a, that was a great moment. But the real, the big moment that summer, uh, there was a play called Dylan. And uh, it was uh, about uh, Dylan Thomas's uh, demise in, in New York City on that, uh, he was on a literary tour in New York and uh, he well he pretty much drank himself to death you know White Horse Tavern down in the village and um, but there's a scene we were in this dark theater and there's a scene where uh, he's sitting at a table and he takes uh, 18 shots of whiskey and puts a builds a pyramid on this table in front of him and says I want to be the drunkest man in the world and I turned to Joe Schulte and I said this is for me this is for me. This is what I want to do. And uh, really, that I was just 
galvanized, you know, the acting thing. And uh, so anyway, that's, and then uh, the next summer we saw once again, just on and on and on, the original uh, uh, odd couple, Walter Matthau and John, Jack Lemmon on Broadway. And yeah, it's just incredible, the people we met and the things I saw at that time. So uh, at the end of our high school days, uh, was uh, accepted into a number of universities, but uh, I decided I, I got a partial scholarship to Boston University where I really wanted to go because all through these high school days I've been falling in love with uh, music as well. And of course in St. Louis, man, uh, this, this stuff, the musical education that I got was, was quite incredible. But uh, one of the, uh, the groups, uh, you know, I had fallen in love with uh, the Jim Queskin band. All the guys who were in it, just an incredible uh, bunch of guys, Jeff Moldar and uh, Fritz Richmond, and they all went to school in Boston, and so I really wanted to go there and take my, my knowledge of uh, roots music and blues music uh, up to that, so that was uh, quite a beginning for me, and in some ways uh, <laughs> quite an ending as well. You know, as a, as a kid, like I say, my friend, my dad's friend, Roland Gaines from down in Kentucky, when he had moved back to Kentucky, I, I used to go down uh, summers to spend uh, some time down in, uh, in, in eastern Kentucky. And uh, dad kind of wanted me to understand that uh, pork chops and chicken didn't come wrapped in plastic. So I would go down and, and spend some time with, uh, with Roland. And uh, they had a little, little bit of a farm, you know, nothing big. but. Uh, did some did some work down there and was introduced to some really incredible musicians that lived up in the hills. You know, I mean, these are guys that when you said it, they, they, oh, he lives up the holler. It really it really meant something. And then meanwhile, you know, so I had learned a, a great deal about the, that roots music, uh, some deep bluegrass and mountain music. And back home in St. Louis, of course, uh, I don't know where to begin. Uh, Chuck Berry. Albert King, uh, Ike and Tina Turner, Little Milton, Oliver Sane, uh, you know, and then the people that would come through town that we got to see. I mean, uh, we would go see Jimmy Reed. We would, I met Muddy Waters when I was 15 years old at a place called Slick's Lakeside Club in Eagle Park, Illinois. Eagle Park is a, a suburb of, uh, of East St. Louis. And um, one of those kind of places uh, where Ronnie Hawkins said, you got to puke twice and show them your razor and they'll let you in. <laughs> in fact, that, that night we went, we went to see Muddy and uh, I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, I, when I think about it now, here we, here we were, these two little, I had a buddy, Rocky Kinsella, who later changed his name to Rocky Gordon, but uh, he was always Rockle. And uh, he, was, he was fearless, man. He, we would see in the paper or we would hear on the radio that Muddy was going to be somewhere, or Holland Wolf was going to be somewhere, or Jimmy Reed was going to be somewhere. And we would jump in the car and go see him, you know, and we would be in the, like, Slicks Lakeside Club. I don't think there was another white person in five miles of the place. And here we were, these two little teenage Jesuit prep school guys with button-down collar shirts and khaki pants. <laughs> we, we would show up, and they'd let us in, and they realized that, I mean, we would sit in the corner and... and not bother anybody and just soak it all in and th that night uh, at Slicks so we got there quite early and we were sitting in the corner trying to be invisible really and uh, in walk uh, Muddy Waters and his band Otis Band walked in first holy cow Otis Band I mean like 10 feet away from me 
Uh, Sam Lawhorn was playing guitar. Uh, George Harmonica Smith. Francie Clay was uh, playing the drums. And uh, and then walks Muddy Waters. Holy cow. And uh, he kind of looked over. He was looking around the room and saying hi to people. He saw us and got a big, he started kind of laughing and came over and asked us what we, you know, and I was like dumbstruck. And, oh, Mr. Waters, I called him. <laughs> How much I love your songs and your music. I got your records and I wear them out. And, and uh, he got a big kick out of that. And he told the, uh, the owner there to buy us a Coca-Cola and to make sure that everything was all right. <laughs> so that was uh, quite an incredible night. Other nights, I mean, going to see Howlin' Wolf at a place called uh, Fireworks Station in Brooklyn, Illinois, which is also known as Lovejoy, Illinois, which is where Albert King lived. But uh, this is a place with a dirt floor and big uh, aluminum uh, troughs where they keep cold beer and just uh, incredible experiences, you know. And seeing, I mean, see, seeing Wolf and uh, seeing Muddy in those places and Jimmy Reed uh, and then later seeing them at, you know, like college uh, concerts and stuff. Kind of a different show. <laughs> I got to tell you that. You know, man, Muddy was really something live in those little crazy clubs because they, they had a they had to give people their money's worth, I'll tell you, and they did. We went to see Jimmy Reed at a place called the uh, London House East, 18th and Bond Avenue in East St. Louis. And uh, once again, we'd gotten there early and, it's funny, when you go see Jimmy Reed, there would always be a few other uh, kind of white white guys, some, you know, generally kind of greaser kind of guys that would be there. When you'd see Jimmy Reed, nobody else, but Jimmy Reed always attracted some uh, some of the country and western people, too. But here we were at the London House East. We'd gotten there early, sitting in the corner. And uh, the band, you know, the house band, the London Airs, came out, and uh, my good friend, one of the great disc jockeys of all time, was the MC that night, Lou, Father Times. And uh, I practically stole my whole act from Father. <laughs> but uh, he, he had been the MC, and the London era sang, and the, and the gals came out and did some hits, uh, Hold On, I'm Coming, and this and that and the other thing. Meanwhile, where's Jimmy Reed? I mean, his whole band is there. Mama Reed was there. Mary Lee made his wife, you know. And uh, so everybody's waiting, what the hell happened? And I went back to go use the washroom, and there he was, he was passed out in, in the stall at the cannon. So I went to the guy at the door, and I thought he was going to kill me when I told him, you know, that Jimmy Reed is he's back in the bathroom. He looks kind of in rough shape. So anyway, they got him out, and I guess they gave him a coffee and a sandwich or whatever. And uh, he got up on stage, and he said, oh, I'm so glad to be here. And you know, it's East St. Louis. Oh, yeah, East St. Louis. I love this place. And he tore into his act, and he was just dynamite, man. It was just got me running, got me hot. Oh, Yeah. And the Mama Reed sang along with him. And I mean, to be able to see this stuff live and in person when I was in high school was, uh, yeah, I can't tell you, you know. And then, of course, in, in my neighborhood, just about six blocks from our house in North St. Louis there, there was a, in a bowling alley, a club, uh, the, the Imperial Lanes. And attached to that was the Club Imperial, upstairs run by a guy named George Edick. And uh, they, would, uh, they would often have these teen dances. And the house band was none other than Ike and Tina Turner. So we would go, you know, 13, 14 years old. And uh, holy cow, man, this, you know, the, the energy in this room and the, the I-Cats, oh boy, and, and Tina herself, and then all the gang. And, you know, Ike was a little cat, you know, and, and you'd see him and he'd say, what the, all this energy, all this stuff that's going on. And I thought to myself, he plays the guitar. 
<laughs> yeah. And uh, so that was really decided. Well, I gotta gotta get into that guitar thing because I had messed around playing the piano and I kind of gave up lessons on that. But I, you know, kept because music something that's in me, you know. And uh, it's got to, as Fred McDowell said, it's in you and it's got to come out. So anyway, I really got into in, into the guitar at, at this point. And so all through high school, I played, you know, the little bands and going places. And it sort of was a, you know, on, on a kind of a folky side of things. Because, uh, uh, you know, as a kid, you, you would go, there was a, an area in St. Louis um, that was uh, quite happening for quite a while. It was called Gaslight Square. It was our, it was our version of Greenwich Village in St. Louis, okay? And uh, there was a place there called the Left Bank. And uh, just uh, the people that came through there, you know, er very early in their careers, Barbara Streisand, the, the, uh, the Smothers Brothers, uh, Lenny Bruce, I'm telling you, they would come through there. But, and there was a place called the, the Left Bank where uh, so many, uh, Josh White came in there and uh, saw him. And so, you know, of course, uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. Uh, so we would go, we'd go and kind of sneak in and we get in some of the places where, and then there was, there was a coffee house that had sort of an open mic thing, and this is where I really started. This was back in, would have been 64 when I really started, uh, you know, getting seriously into, you know, playing in front of people and, and doing these, uh, at these coffee houses. And uh, there was a guy named uh, uh, Forrest Sykes, who was a piano player, and uh, he was uh, at... Uh, rough edges I'll tell you he was you know drank too much and this and that and the other thing but man he could sit down and play that piano and he had a record that one side of it was a Chopin etude and the other side was a song called Forrest Got the Blues he was quite a character my friend John Ashton and I uh, would hang out with him and uh, drive him around and uh, the last time I saw him he had he was not feeling well and we took him to Homer G. Phillips Hospital emergency room and we waited for quite a while and they never came back out and we, we asked about him and they told us, you know, just to go away. And that was the last time I saw Forrest Sykes and God knows what happened to him at that time. But uh, I mean, these are the, this is the stuff we came up came up doing all through through high school. And uh, but then when, like I say, went off to uh, to New York, I went to, to Boston to go to school in Boston. But of course, it was so close to New York and Greenwich Village and that whole scene, which would just fascinated me like crazy. So that summer of 66, on my way up to school in Boston, we, I had a friend who had moved uh, to New York, had a place to stay. So I spent most of that summer of 66 uh, hanging around Greenwich Village. And I, well, met Fred Neal and I met uh, John Hammond, who's still one of my best friends to this very day. And a little story about John. This was a Labor Day weekend, and I was just going to be, be going to Boston to start school in a couple of days. Ran into John. Well, I had been wandering around down in the village and went into the Cafe Wa one afternoon. And there was a, a group called uh, Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. He was this left-handed guitar player. Man, they were tearing up some blues. I remember him so when I'm playing Killing Floor and, and, and doing some uh, impressions tune too, some souls tunes. I remember him singing that she was a gypsy woman. And that beautiful guitar part that uh, Curtis Mayfield put out. And so anyway, we uh, had quite an afternoon and ran into John. He said, oh, yeah, I'm playing at the Cafe Go-Go, and I'll put your name at the door. And, uh, man, wait till you hear this guitar player that I got playing my band. So, okay, yeah, cool, man. So we showed up, and uh, my buddy and I and uh, got in and sitting there. And meanwhile, uh, in walks... Uh, Chaz Chandler and a couple guys from the Animals and stuff. And wow, this is something. 
And the band comes out, and uh, hey, this was the same guitar player I saw, this uh, this crazy left-handed guy that was really tearing it up. And, and, and once again, he was just ho, just rocking the place, you know? So we're on a break, and I'm out standing in talking with John, smoking, whatever. Um, Jimmy comes out, Jimmy James, and uh, says, oh, John, you know, thanks, man, for these... Uh, Gigs, you know, he, I, he'd been out on the road. I'd been out on the road with the Isley Brothers and stuff and, uh, you know, kind of kicking around New York. And you've really been good to me this last six weeks. Uh, you know, this, these gigs you've been giving me and a little bit of money has been great. But these English guys have just offered me uh, a bunch of money to go to England with them next week. Well, of course, we all know this is Jimi Hendrix. And that was uh, you know, the beginning. <laughs> the rest, as they say, was history. Uh, that was my you know, contact with, with Jimmy, and uh, I got to know uh, Jimmy's dad later in life, after, long after Jimmy was gone, I got to, I got to know Al, and uh, went down to Seattle a lot, went to, went to a bunch of ball games, Mariners games with him, and he told me many stories about, you know, his, his family, he had been born, Jimmy's dad had been born here in Vancouver, and um, this, the story of, of his parents, uh, Nora and Ross Hendricks, they had been uh, entertainers themselves, and we're in a uh, in a show in a you know like one of these uh, review chocolate baby reviews or whatever. And they were in uh, I guess it was in Victoria. They got and um, they went to the theater, and there was a lock on the door, and they'd been sort of abandoned. The, you know the, the show. Had, so they got work at the uh, Empress Hotel, and after a while, moved to Vancouver and got work over here, and uh, started church. And of course, there's that. Uh, down on uh, Georgia Street in Strathcona, it's been it's been it's a heritage building now where where uh, Ross and Nora live. Um, you know, Ross Hendricks, his Jim, Jimmy's grandfather, was the groundskeeper at uh, the Langara Golf Course for a number of years. <laughs> Maybe a lot of people don't know. And of course, his uh, his grandmother Nora worked down at uh, Vise Steakhouse, which was a uh, on Union Street, a fa- famous place down, down in Strathcona, and w- actually was still happening when I when I first got to Vancouver, and it was the place where you could go late at night, and they had the best jukebox in the world, and you never know who might walk in. Uh, Louis Armstrong is a great picture of Louis uh, in the kitchen with an apron on and, and a frying pan in his hand. Uh, those were the days, you know. It was uh, really something. The people that we got to meet and the, and the, and the stories we got to tell and. So that was uh, just, I mean, all this inspiration that I picked up everywhere and uh, had all this, all this music going on in me. Meanwhile, of course, I had gone to school in, in Boston to, to major in theater because this was my, my thing. I was going to be a, a famous actor on Broadway. <laughs> Little did I know <laughs> what the future had in store. episode of One Life. 
You'll find all the episodes up now for your enjoyment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.